Uh, good afternoon, history lovers, and welcome to the latest uh, History Ireland Head School. And I'm your Head School Master, Tommy Graham, editor of History Ireland magazine. And if you're not already subscribers, you can talk to Helen uh, outside in the hallway, who has the latest issue there, uh, hot off the presses. Um, now, this uh, Head School is being held in conjunction with uh, the exhibition, which will shortly open, but 14th of December? 14th of December, in the Coach House. Uh, uh, entitled 100 Years of Women in Politics and Public Life. Um, now, just to explain, there was a, the, the, the setting up the exhibition was delayed, but we had booked this date and this venue, so we decided to go ahead with the, uh, with the head school, having assembled this uh, you know, stellar panel here uh, uh, in front of you. Some of these people are very difficult to find. Uh, this is actually Jolie here beside <laughs> me, not, not a hailogram. Um, we're delighted to have them all. Uh, I'll introduce in a few minutes. Uh, but I think that uh, most of you have had uh, Sinead's presentation, so I think it's, it's, it's the only thing Sinead is, they might can go to the exhibition now, I haven't heard your, uh, oh, yeah, your, your presentation. Know, but anyway, I'll introduce the panel, we have uh, Sinead McCool, the curator of the, the exhibition, uh, and beside me, uh, Mary O'Rourke, uh, former Minister for Education, uh, of course, Mary is one of the, the, the Lennon uh, family dynasty from Athlone, you're, you're not the first uh, Lennon I've had on the on the panel, by the way, on, on, a, on a high school panel, I had Connor on a, on a, a, a discussion you a few years ago. Your, your nephew. Yeah. Um, and then beside me here, the elusive uh, Joe Lee, formerly of uh, New York University. You are, you're tired now, Joe, are you? Oh, what do you mean elusive? Are you ever, ever, I never get to the phone, that's why. <laughs> uh, I also have to talk to your wife. Um, uh, and but then finally, she organised you. I think, yes, she's the real person you need to talk to. Uh, and then we've Drew McMahuna, uh, who's the president of the History Teachers Association uh, of Ireland. Now, just to, just to, to uh, explain the format of the head school, um, it is a school, you know, you have, to, you have to pay attention, you have to keep order, and you have to do a little bit of work as well, because we, we will be expecting members of the audience to make their own contribution from the floor. Uh, and it won't be just at the end. Uh, if at any stage you disagree violently with something no, said on the podium here, put, put the paw up and we will respond uh, <laughs> and make your, make your contribution to the discussion. Um, now, um, this, of course, uh, the reason we're, we're having this uh, exhibition and this head school is because uh, this is the centenary of uh, women uh, getting the vote, women over 30 uh, at least getting the vote in the 1918 yeah, uh, general 30. election. Um, now, of course, famously, uh, Countess Markovitz uh, was the first woman elected to Westminster, uh, but of course she, she never took her seat because she was a member of the first doll which assembled in January 1919 in the round room uh, at the back of the mansion house. And she was not only the uh, she was then the first uh, minister then uh, in the first doll, uh, she was minister for Labour. Sinead, we don't hear that much about her, her performance as Minister for Labour. Normally we think of Candice Markovitz as, as an iconic figure. Uh, how did she fare as Minister for Labour? Now, given the fact that she was a Minister for Labour on the run, yeah. more or less. I, I think there's, there's been a lot of revision in relation to the, to the Countess Markovitz in recent years in that a uh, sort of maybe a more serious study. So in the Countess Markovitch School that was set up a number of years ago, they've actually asked every year that they would have a keynote address just related to, to the Countess and her contribution. And, and a number of years ago, it's published in, in a book of proceedings that Margaret Ward was asked to address this very issue. And everyone would be very familiar with Margaret Ward's um, stellar work from the time of unmanned revolutionaries. And you know, she, she looks at it not at the sort of rhetoric. I mean, you hear that story often about how you know she settled one dispute by 
brandishing a, a gun in, you know, in, in, in terms of uh, that was how she resolved the dispute. And you often have to look at where the source of that material was coming from because she got so much bad press. She's almost like the star and the sun in relation to the way that she's always depicted. And when you take away all of those sort of mad stories away from it, she was she did set up arbitration courts. She did try and put a structure on, on her role, but she was very conscious that she was trying to balance between the trade unions and what the trade unions were doing at the time and establishing a, a, you know, a, a secretary of labor within a new government. And then, of course, if you have her being on the run and being jailed during that period of time, which is obviously really, really difficult. But she was one of the people who didn't have her offices raided. She actually had the, it set up in such a way that it looked like a music school. There were pianos in the, in the space and, and that at the time. And what I think about it is, is that, that um, again, the, the idea of the paperwork. Where is the paperwork to show what they actually achieved? That is the, is, is the problem, that you don't have that, that bundle of documentation that backs up that work. But I, I still don't give up hope that that material is going to come to light. I think that's the one thing we've discovered over the last sort of 20 years is never give up on the fact that you'll get more documentation to prove a particular point. You just have to keep highlighting it. And I think we've moved from her being the caricature into a serious player in, more, in the, mo the most recent interpretations of her. Joe, can, can I go to you on this one? Because uh, um, you produced your um, Ireland, what, 1912 to 1985, is it? Yeah. That's the final No, and you, you did take a, a bit of flack at the time. You mentioned, I think Margaret Ward actually was the, the person who, who uh, was critical of the, you know, the, the, the lack of the, the women's presence in that. But then Sinead maybe has given you an, a, a, an out here, right? It's the lack of documentation. How, how, can, we, how can historians deal with that? Right? In other words, how can you study something that's that's, well, in one sense, that's not there. The documents aren't there, but the phenomenon is there of women's activity, women's political activity. Well, I think that applies to everybody, basically. You know, if the documentation isn't there, the historian, quite historian, can't say, footnote it, etc. This is the way it was. You can surmise, but the surmise is always subject to qualification and to revision and all the rest of it. You may not have surmised enough, and maybe in far more than you surmised or there may be nothing to surmise. So you can only go as far as documentation allows you. You can suggest possibilities, it seems to me, reasonable possibilities, or within the balance of possibilities, or even the balance of probabilities. But you can't say this is the way it was if you don't have the actual evidence in front of you. It's like a, like a court of law in that respect. You know, you can't, you can't make a judgment on something that the evidence isn't there for. You can suggest what you think the balance of probabilities is, right? But then there's always a danger for that if you're writing as a, as a story in what I might call the narrow sense. Let's say you can't assert something as definite, or you can't even suggest that some you can suggest that something is possible, but you can't suggest this is this is almost certainly the way it was because that's going too far beyond your brief. So if you're going, if, you know, if, if you're going to be, you may have very passionate feelings about it and how you would have loved it to have been, but if the stuff isn't there, you can't bloody well say it as if that was the case. But is it, I think it's the case now that the stuff is there now, uh, and maybe I'll go to you uh, on this one, Deirdre, because you're at the whole face uh, as a teacher, right? I mean, I, I, I'm asking the question because I, I'm not quite clear. I'm, I'm not a school teacher. Um, is the material there now for students in terms of, of you know, women's history and, and uh, given the, its proper place? Well, I, I think it is. Um, thankfully, I mean, in one sense, I, I keep saying my mantra is that there's never been a more wonderful time to be a teacher um, and to be a student of history because resources have been made available. That's again through there to the great work of Sinead et al. Uh, and, and other people who've been involved in the writing of history and, of course, going back to the great champion of all would be Margaret McCurtain. Um, and 
And I think Margaret McCartan, you know, single-handedly then with the great support of her colleagues in the world of history, um, in publishing her, her, her very, very important book in 1970, I think, am I right there? Tell me the, the book on, 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 on turning... I think it's 78. 78, I think. 78? But basically sort of, uh, you know, started challenging the old certainties and started doing precisely what you're asking, is let's look at the evidence that's there, and of course over time evidence keeps, you know, you know do, does re reveal itself. Um, but we just need insightful minds like Margaret and, and like cont contemporary historians as well. So in terms of what material is available to us as teachers, um, you know, take something like the, 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 the digitalization of the census. That I mean, now all you need is one computer, and in fact some schools can boast many computers and computer rooms or whatever, that it doesn't need to be that high tech, that now it literally, you know, the press of a button that one, one can look into um, to a century ago from all, all aspects, uh, all based on sources, you know, and, and the stuff is there, you cannot argue with, with the state, state, state papers. So, um, so now it's great to be a history teacher uh, because of all of these that have been made available through, through the various, as I say, good works and, and all of that, but um, certainly it was harder up until now. May, I mean, can I just bring you in the, uh, on this? I mean, you started your, your political career, you, that was back in the 70s, I think? You were 82. Local, 82. Um, no, but you were local councillor before that. Why well, so, yeah, yeah, that That's all politics is local, no, as you know. Um, no, I, I, I'm, just, I'm just curious as to whether, were you conscious of, of this history behind you, like, of the Countess Markovis, of all these people? Because when you started off like this, wouldn't have been front and centre of... No, you're quite right, history. it wouldn't have been. But I was always very conscious of Constance Markovich. My mother was born in a place called Drumcliff in County Sligo. So Lizardale and all of what went on there, we were always kind of fed those stories when we were growing up. And in fact, when my mother had me, and you can imagine how many years ago that was, I was, Brian was seven years older, Paddy was five years older, my sister Anne was five years older, and I was the last. You know Irish families, they always ended up having one more. And she, my mother called me Mary Constance, after Constance Markovich, and she called me Mary Constance Hannah. Hannah was after Hannah Sheedy Skeffington. So if she wasn't a Republican, who was? So I was very conscious that I was called Mary Constance after Constance Markovich. And in that way, I kind of, sort of, she grew into my mind. And I remember reading, and I wonder, perhaps, I'm sure you could tell us today if this is true, that there's a coat hanger in the House of Commons, yes, with the name of Constance Markovich on it. She never took up her place there, as we all know, that time, but her coat hanger was there with her name on it. And when I was years ago in London one time, I went to the House of Commons and I found her coat hanger. And I thought, well now Constance, there you are and here I am. <laughs> she never took up her place. But I wondered, and I'm sure maybe Deirdre or yourself, Sinead, or indeed Joe, how many women, that time we were called the British Isles, we're not, thank God, anymore that. But in that time, how many women stood in that election? Well, the, the, it's, it's 17 in some accounts, 16 or 17, and it varies it, between it the two. It stood in the whole, in yeah, the election. election. Yeah, and, the, um, and actually it's really interesting. They had an exhibition on in London, in the, in, you know, but they didn't address who those women were, and there's, 
there's now going to be an exhibition um, this, in 2019 looking at those individual women because so many people ask the question who but are those women who so, Yes, because I often mm. wondered about those yeah. women. Yeah. It, but she was the only one that out of all those that got elected yeah. in the British Isles. A lot of the women stood in no hope constituencies, though. You know, in, no, they did. Unionist dominated in the north and so on. Well, so well, well it was Winnie Carney is the one you think about. Yes, yeah. Yeah. That, and mm. she, that she had no hope of being elected. And then when it came time for selection, a lot of the women objected, included, including Hannah, she's captain, did not want to stand and no, have no hope of being mm. elected. They wanted to throw their lot behind. Um, you know, the women who might have a chance, chance yeah. to, to win. And mm. so, the, so there was a great mobilisation in relation to the to the electioneering process, mm. but what's interesting about that is, is when you think about it and you think about the fight for for um, the votes, so, the, so, the, so from violence in the suffrage, yes, yeah, yeah. the fact that you then sort of you know shake your head and think that it, it is only the countess who ends up being being elected, and of course she had been involved in suffrage, the suffrage movement in Sligo in her own home place, mm. and when you read her her earliest speech that's reported in the newspaper as sort of amusing proceedings, she sort of saying if we don't make a round and we don't make a noise we won't be heard and it's so interesting oh, that, yes, that yeah. continues on through the through the time it, consider, it continued yeah. on forever <laughs> in the time no, and, sorry Mary yeah. Yeah, no just so to answer you directly yes I was conscious both from my mother's background and from the fact that she talked a lot about Lizardale and the inhabitants there. So I was always very conscious of Constance Markovich. Just want to make it clear that Mary did not tell me this before, and that was a totally lucky hit in my part. Yeah, I know it was actually. Um, actually, yes. we have a radio mic at the back there. If you want to, if you want to make a contribution, just wait till we have the radio mic because uh, this is being recorded, by the way. So just bear that in mind, by the way. You know, keep, keep it clean. Um, <laughs> Could we, Quiva, could you just bring up the microphone here? Somebody wants to uh, make a, a, a contribution. Quiva isn't there, is she? Where's she gone? She's, she's gone. There she is there. Yes. yes. Just this lady here. Thanks. Thanks very much. Just while you're on the topic of Countess Markovich, I would just like maybe Sinead, you could address the fact of the recognition that you would have had um, at the time or after her death. Um, I know she's become an iconic figure now, you could say, oh, yeah. but given yeah. that she was the, the first MP and the first member of Dáil and the first minister, did she get a state funeral or, or was she a victim of... Did she? Right, just to establish that. Yeah. And was she, in your estimation, a victim of her class and a victim of... You know, she was often considered a drama figure, really. And I wonder, was that a form of misogyny? Oh, of course. So that's, a, that's a very, very complicated. Hofuelon brought out the first biography of her, and um, the you know it was very negative. And I think when you look at a lot of the material that was produced in that period, just in the middle of, of the twenties and, and into the early thirties, where the, where you look at it, and this is something that's come out in relation to you know researching for this exhibition. I might not have answered this the same way maybe some years ago, but you look at the rise of all of these different organizations from Sarah to the Republican Congress to the Communist Party. There was a great fear among um, the people in established politics, and we were a very young nation at that stage, and the, so many of the women who had been active in 16 and, and onwards were, were t taking part in these organizations, and you have to think about Maud Gahn and the, you know, constantly having these spe speeches on, you know, on O'Connell Street and that. Mm. So, the, so when they were dealing with with making of icons or the idea of iconic status, 
they, there, there, was a, there was a sort of a, a deliberate effort to, to, to depict them in, in a way in a lot of what was written. So that, that seemed to be negative towards them. The interesting thing about the, about the funeral of Countess Margaret, I met someone recently who said that her mother had, had witnessed it and had counted the gun carriages with flowers and that this child had counted and said there were nine gun carriages full of flowers that followed the coffin. Mm. And I think that's a really good visual reference to, you know, again, a tribute to a particular person. And what comes through over and over again from, from oral accounts to written accounts is that how, how, how she was loved by individuals and how people who actually came in contact with her said that she was, she was such a, a good person. Politically, it's a little bit more complicated because she's, yeah. she's owned by so many different people. So from, from her original being, being in the Sinn Féin, then Sinn Féin morphing and changing, then into Fianna Fáil, then into you know, the, the, the early years of the state where who did she represent and what did she say? And so I think that that's where her legacy around, around how she's depicted is. It's like, pick a countess. Yes, she was an actress. Yes, she was very dramatic in relation to how she kissed her gun, and that is a true story that was caricatured by Grace Gifford in, in the aftermath of the Rising. She is photographed and talked about in the press at the time. She did in 1917 dress up in the Sinn Féin uniform, and those photographs with Poppet, her dog, were distributed to the Tatler um, magazine. So, you, so she's actually producing her own publicity and her own propaganda, and at that time she was being put forward for that reason. That was the reason when she went to America where she's fundraising. She was a, she, so she she was playing a role in relation to either gaining funds or producing um, a following for what she believed in. Can yeah, I, just I think sorry, just yeah. I think it's very interesting what you said because what people will tell you that she was loved by ordinary people. Ordinary people yeah. You know the way people say now, oh, she likes to be loved or he likes to be. She was very much in touch with ordinary men and women, and I think that is at odds with the public exposition of her that we sometimes see toting the gun and the uniform and all of that. She was a very ordinary woman. Can I just go back to the, the 1918 election, because we, we may move on for a minute, and I want to go to, to, to Joe, to you on this one. Um, Women got the vote for the first time in 1918, women over, over 30, and apparently the, the reason for that was that if, if they gave it on the same level as men, the women would have vastly outnumbered the men because so many had been killed in the war. Uh, now, the Irish Parliamentary Party, Redmond's party, had oh, opposed votes for women. I, I know we can't, we, we, you can't get into the secrecy, uh, secrecy of the, the, the ballot booths, but is there any evidence at all, even anecdotal, that the, basically the women were waiting in the long grass for Redmond and the Irish Parliamentary Party? in 1918? That's a very good question, actually. It's a short term. My short answer, I don't know. Uh, I've never seen it. I see a hand going up there. Maybe. Can I, uh, no, uh, the, um, I've, never, I've never seen an, an attempt made. Maybe it has been, because I'm not abreast of the latest research on a lot of these things, I'm sorry to say, uh, to try and break down between male and female. But it, it's a secret ballot, so how do you make the calculations there? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, let me put it like this, if there were any suspicion that there was a significant difference, yeah. I think somebody from whatever side yeah. would surely try to point that out. Right. That's all I would say, but maybe not. You know, I'm quite open to correction or amplification. Your question there? Yeah. Um, well, actually, I was just going to comment on that. Uh, Rosemary Colin Owen quotes John Dillon, uh, who, of course, was really in charge of the party at that stage, uh, as being a ferocious misogynist and uh, saying that if there were 
uh, votes for women, that that would be the end of civilization as we know it, and so on. Uh, and I think Redmond had much the same feeling about them. The way that women are spoken about, of course, is always uh, paternalistic, or in the case of Markovic, I believe um, that they uh, were disturbed by her beauty, and they couldn't actually hack it. It's too difficult to be in the same room as her. And of course, Yeats did great damage with his uh, rubbish because he didn't understand women. <laughs> right. No, I, I, well, something that's been discussed in red, I don't have the countess how the discussion here totally, but, but there's one aspect of her uh, character is the fact that she, she converted to Catholicism uh, as a result of an epiphany during the Rising, apparently, but formally the following year. Um, yet, I, and I, I just want to go to this iconic thing, you know, there were posters during the Repeal the Eighth campaign, you know, of, of the Countess, Repeal the Eighth, right? And Mary Kenny has a has a, a provocative little piece in the mm. current issue of History Island, actually, basically suggesting that you know the Countess mightn't or, or wouldn't, you know, have supported Repeal the Eighth. I know we're, we're we're talking about time travel here, right? <laughs> what I'm talking about is the appropriation of iconic figures for for other agendas. You know, um, anyone any comments on that? I mean, is that legitimate? Is that fair game? I mean, I, I also saw Peg Sayers uh, in a repeal. <laughs> But you know, I, I, I'm just the point I'm raising is: Are we investing, you know, kind of whatever you're having yourself in some of these uh, historical figures that, that maybe isn't uh, appropriate? Dear, have you any views on this? Like, particularly if you're if you're, you're you're teaching students because they're obviously absorbing what's happening now, mm -hmm. and yet you're trying to teach them to take an objective approach to you know, the historical uh, Countess Markovic as opposed to the iconic uh, Countess Markovic. How do you deal with that? Um, I'll approach it from another angle, if I may, Tommy. And um, th this, this might seem shocking. But uh, even at this stage, students are saying to me, enough about Countess Markovic. Mm -hmm. Surely there are other women, um, or whatever. So um, without uh, denigrating her too much, but um, there were other women. <laughs> you know, there were other people who, who were the untold stories of Irish history. Um, so uh, so I'll, I'll answer your question that way, if, if, if I may. Of course they, they revere her, and, and who couldn't but be impressed, as you say, by her own propaganda, you know, by, by the images that, that she portrayed. Um, but young people today, and I only te teach girls, I've never, never taught boys, but, um, so I can only say from, from teaching in, in the single-sex Dominican school, um, but they're, uh, they show great imagination. Um, they, 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 they can step outside of the present, and one of the key phrases that's in education now is contextualization. You know that that they they get it. You know when you when actually you know you, you put put somebody in 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 context. Um, so that's all I'd say about that, Tommy. You know, yeah. that, that that they are interested in looking looking at other women and and other role models. Can I can I just make make make, make this is not a very profound point, but the second you begin um, trying to freeze some some perspective as of whenever it was. And translate into the presence of speech. How would they, how would how would they respond now? How would they perform now? You're automatically imposing your own perspectives on what they ought to have done, essentially, and it is simply unhistorical. Uh, you cannot project. I mean, you're doing, you're presuming to know how some other mind would work. Mm -hmm. And however well you may think you know yes, that mind, yeah. you can't come from inside it. And how they would respond to changing circumstances. Trying to impose on somebody how they would work today, how they would respond to circumstances, whether they're male or female, whatever generation they are, etc., etc. To me, it's simply an abnegation of historical judgment. Mm -hmm. you, know, you can say, this is the way they responded to the circumstances at the time. 
okay, you can project how you think the way that mind worked would respond to circumstances today. Uh, and, but then you have to say, how would that mind have changed? How would, how would it have responded over time? Was, were they bringing the identical mind that they had then to where they are today, to where they are now? Or would they have modified, mellowed, uh, reinforced, or whatever? So to, to make that judgment, in my view, is essentially, it may not be wrong, mm. but it's historical as far as the historian, quite historian, can go. Mm. Uh, yeah, as we, we impose our own wishes on them. You know, very and I mean, one of, one of the things that we're doing in education all the time now, and I mean, it, it has advanced so much, Tommy, over over time for the better uh, and as I say one of the key kind of buzz phrases is contextualization but we are teaching them Joe you know the language of history the vocabulary sure, of sure, history yeah. you know with so terms like you know being objective propaganda and um, all of these terms are now in a sense no, the, no, the, the, the alphabet good, good, of, good. of how we're actually approaching history in the classroom so so it's it's a great time to be teaching history. The, the one thing I'm, I'm stopping but the, the one thing I just it's what to me is terrifying but it applies to oneself as well it's when you look at the way historians the way we change our minds over generations the way there's new interpretation etc etc uh, and the question that one is to always ask is not so much well the first question we ask not so much the first question we ask is not what do I think about that the first question we have to ask is why do I think what I think about that in other words the first question the historian puts into himself or herself why am I thinking that way Right? And so you, you, you subject yourself to the most intense scrutiny you can, so far as any of us can ever do that properly, which none of us ever can, totally. Uh, and, then on, and then and only then can, is one entitled to make histor historical judgments. You see, I think that we're trying to make somebody, trying to see into somebody's mind mm -hmm. as to what they would have said or done in a particular situation when you posed the question about the repeal. Would she have been an iconic sort of a, a show me person in that time? I don't think you can do that because I think overall, when you think of Constance Markovic, what she did, she was the only person, first woman in the whole of the British Isles to be elected. She was the first woman minister. I mean, that is huge. And so trying to despite her eccentricities, mm -hmm. if she had them, and she had, despite her oddities or whatever, she's that one salient factor overcomes them all. She had that sterling quality which enabled her to be elected, which enabled her to take up her position as a minister in an all-male environment, which enabled her to go out with the gun in Stephen's Green during the whole rising period. She had all those huge qualities which transcend would she have, what would she have said at the such and such a vote, you know? Mm -hmm. I think it's so large that it gives her iconic status mm -hmm. and it's hard to take from that. Mm -hmm. no, just, to, just to move us on a little bit, because uh, um, uh, Condos Marcus may have been the first uh, Irish minister, but the second one wasn't until Mara Gagan Quinn in, in the late 1970s, mm -hmm. appointed by the well-known feminist Charles J. Hoy. Um, <laughs> My question, sorry, Mary. Uh, I know you're a fan. Uh, no, no, but my, 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 seriously, my point is, what happens, uh, Sinead? What, so to get, well, we, we, have, we have rediscovered this, this, this activism of women okay, right, right. in the revolutionary period, right? Uh, where does it all go wrong? Okay. That's a big question. I'm going to start off by in defence of Charles J. Hoggy, for starters, um, because he, he did appoint, he, he did appoint her, yeah. and he also was the one who had an active interest in issues to do with 
um, you know, gain, gaining welfare, and when he's in, in health, he does he does huge numbers of things. He also appointed himself, which they thought was a clerical error, I, I'm told. Um, uh, when he when he became head of the women's committee <coughs> yes. um, later on, because he could he could appoint somebody, and then when his name was written in, in it, they thought that it, it was a mistake. Yeah, I was that on that commission. Yes. So yes, that's yes, a, yeah. so what I think is interesting. He he saw the power of it at that stage, and you can see that happening through all the different um, fiches that were before him, trying to see how they could actually work out how to attain this women's vote and where, 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 where it was all going wrong. They were all asking those questions as well. But I think, what, just to, to go back in relation to this understanding, and I think it's very important, I think, for me to just add in to when you, you talk about repeal or people's association or people's understanding of, of women, right? Because, um, and following on from what was said about Margaret McCartan, I was the first um, of the Toronto UCD of Women's History Documents course. Now, this is really important to make the distinction, which was part of my history degree, rather than a member or somebody who came through women's studies. And I don't think that if I had studied history the, the way I did, the, the where I came through the classic training, and what we're having now a lot is, we're having people write history who don't have the training, who don't have the training that, 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 that Joe was talking about, where you have to stop and not go the route of putting a spin or a slant on it, mm. the, the first-hand accounts. And so the exercises that I've always tried to do is to try and pull up documentation or pull up material that actually somebody else can interpret. But I've had material that I have found and I have seen things, and again, would I be considered by people who would be considered to be eminent enough, putting the information then out there again with misinformation. And I think what happens a lot of the time with it is, is you're only as good as, as the vehicle in which you can, you can put the material forward. And I think that's where the, 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 the state have been very successful in recent times, because when they digitized the Military Pensions Bureau record, mm. which is a social history of both men and women in Ireland over this period in time, they digitized it in such a way that everything was, so the blank pages were included. There was no selection process where so much of the material that was digitized previously was digitized with a, a, a sort of a subjective look or was done by the Mormons when they had a, a sort of rationale or somebody decided not to include the supplements. Or So, so again, I suppose what we're, we're saying is, is that, that if we don't um, stay firm to the training in relation to the projection of the material, and one of the reasons that I I'd also did the, um, the exhibition, which doesn't exist yet, of course, as we know, but um, which will exist, is in order to fix the time frame, to fix the, the period in time where you've got a factual account of a list and lists and lists of material and happenings, because what we have in relation to it is, is a pick and mix. Schools can choose what they want to do, and they put instead of history into the curriculum, society and politics. And the new curriculum looks at propaganda, feminist thoughts, the use of the media. But how can you look at the women's story unless you've got the historic record? And that's where I suppose what I, where I'm coming from. So when you have people who are librarians or archivists or coming from other disciplines or coming to history whose training is maybe as a medievalist or some coming through some other avenue, you need to have your basis of an understanding of your politics, your era, and then you can build on the women's story or the other story or the story of children or the story of somebody else. Mm -hmm. And I think what I'm seeing a lot of the time is gaps in the knowledge because people in the 50s who left school at 14 or 13 
were very, very well read. The Irish press used to serialise books, so if you weren't buying the books, you were reading them mm. in serialisations mm. in the newspapers. And I think, again, we're competing all the time to the sound bites. And even the way I'm delivering the exhibition is pandering to the new generation who don't think, they think in sound bites rather than in linear. And we need to completely make sure that have people have their, and you, I think you have it in school, but it depends on your teacher. That's what I was hearing when I was talking, listening to you speak. You're only as good as who teaches you that, that history and yes, gives you that yeah. love. Do you want to come in on that day too? Yeah, um, well obviously it helps if you're a good informed and well-trained teacher. Um, but to, to be fair, and I never thought I'd find myself saying this, but to be fair to the department, um, an awful lot of progress has been made for the better in actually curriculum development. Um, the, the leaving certificate, so you know, a teenager coming out now or a young adult at 18 having done leaving cert history um, has been very, very well served and very well trained. Um, so that you know, it's even hard for a bad teacher not to teach history well, if you know what I mean, if, if, if they follow. Let me, let me just give you an example, if I can, just to, fl to flesh it out. Um, and, you're, and you're talking about, say, bringing in, in the context of women. I mean, the emphasis all the time, particularly saying in the modern course, you can do an early course, but most people do the modern course. But I mean, the, the, the emphasis all the time is the role of evidence, Joe. It's there all the time, that, that you're looking at documents, um, that you're interrogating a body, a, a, a body of evidence. And the, the topics, for instance, that are studied, say, for instance, if we go to the, the early part in Irish history, you would be, say, looking at, you know, the pursuit of sovereignty and the impact of partition. Now, there's a title for you. You know, that's a very well thought out title um, from 1912 to 1949. So students are, are brought through in a survey history, you know, in the course, so that it's a sequence of events. You follow chronologically the events from, you know, the whole home room crisis right through the First World War, 1916, and then, of course, right through the revolutionary period to eventually the, for, the formation uh, of the first all right of the, the, the free state, I should say, and then right through to the, the declaration of the republic in 1949. So you're looking at state building in terms of the sequence of events, but you're also looking at it through the prism or through the lens of key personalities and key concepts. And if I was to list the names of women that are studied in 20th century Irish history, if you go through secondary school mm -hmm. now, they begin with Hannah Sheehy Skeffington, Countess Markovich, Isabella Todd, uh, Evie Hone, and it goes right through, then you, you know, if you go up to, to the, next, the next phase of, of feminism, Sylvia Meehan is, is a key personality. She's there, you know, literally a key personality on the course, apart from obviously being somebody um, that, that, that we would revere and respect. Mary Robinson is there. Um, and then one thing that I think is a great development in terms of, of educating the broader picture in history, that we're, that we're not just looking at Ireland in a bubble, um, that we look at it because we have to also study two courses from the European and wider world, and particularly American history. Um, so you would be looking at the kind of the parallel world of what's happening in America, and therefore you, you study people like Rosa Parks, you study Betty Friedan, you're looking at youth culture, you know, counterculture. So, it, so it's a very, very exciting time where you're, you're, you're following, as I say, the chronology, you're getting the survey, but you're getting it then through the prism of these, these key women. Um, so it's, 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 it's a development for, for the better in terms of the actual curriculum as well. Can I, can I pull this back to my initial question here, right? Which is, what happens to the women once we become independent? I mean, post, you know, 923, right? Because you have this, I say, you have this amazing ferment in the revolutionary period, uh, and then, notwithstanding the people you've mentioned there, yeah. right? But but they they are not they are not the major movers and shakers, like in terms of politics, right? I mean, they're they're important in their own way. I mean, why is it, for example, that the bulk of the activist women were were anti-treaty? Joe, any view on that? I mean. 
is that yeah, their first mistake, yeah, yeah. If, you, if you know what I mean? They, they end up on the losing side. Interesting question. Maybe they were more idealistic. Yeah. Um, I, I, a lot, I suspect, depend on personal relations. Uh, I don't know about that because I don't know enough about the, you know, the, the, uh, the detail. Uh, and uh, or maybe they simply had, how would it, firmer ideological um, beliefs. Uh, or maybe they weren't as accustomed to uh, compromise as a number of the men were. Or, you know, how do you balance? And I'm not either praising or blaming. I mean, you can take those arguments for and against in all the circumstances. I have no idea how I would have responded in all the circumstances. I have no idea how I would have thought. Mm -hmm. You know, it's easy enough to look back and say, oh, etc., etc. But how do you, how does any of us know how we would have thought in circumstances of a century ago, shall we say? Uh, and a lot would depend on what you came out of, and etc., etc. So I just don't know. It is, it is very striking how, how, what a high profile yeah. the anti-treaty women have. Yes. Right? Well, I, I always thought the reason why so many of those very active women took the role of anti-treaty as distinct from those who agreed with it and moved along, I think it is because they became fiercely active and then they didn't want to drop that. They thought we were on a course now to get freedom, complete freedom in Ireland. And to them, maybe in an idealistic way, they thought the treaty represented a defeat of sorts, which it did, let's face it. We had, they had set off looking for a united one Ireland, and then the treaty, they just couldn't adjust their minds they had been used to the life of strife and the life of yearning, yearning for one Ireland. Now there was no more one Ireland. We were now being asked to adhere to 26 counties and to them that was wrong. I think it's just a, a sort of a straightforward way. They decided they were going to keep forward the flame. Now that sounds kind of as if I'd been sweetie pie and sort of idealistic about it. I'm not. They were imbued with that idea that we were for one Ireland, and one Ireland meant 32 counties, not 26 counties. Yeah, I suppose we're back to the same thing again, which is you have to sort of empty your mind of the fact that you, you know what comes next, and you look at them in the aftermath of 16, and you see the fact that they you know, cling to the idea of the of the manifesto, what was the proclamation of independence, they see it as a an Ireland of equal opportunities, then they're trying to fight for the for, for the um you know reunification of Ireland in some cases or maybe a better form of government in case of the friends of communist Russia um, and a number of them went off Rosa uh, Rosamund Jacobs and Hannah Shiskeffitt yeah, and all of them, Rosamund Jacobs, they, they went off to, to, to Russia to see the sort of different ways of government and you have see, uh, what you find sometimes when people say, you know, again, it's back down to the saying, you know, is it one political party, are they trying different things? I mean, you see the likes of Nora Conley O'Brien, when she eventually ends up as a senator, she's actually she's actually uh, appointed by Fianna Fáil, but, you know, she'd mm -hmm. been involved in various, various you know, sort of manifestations of the Labour Party and, and, and again, she'd been in the Republican Congress. So, the, so you see them going into different places and and then, of course, you've got this mass emigration for the women who had been arrested during the Civil War, and they, they leave and they, and they leave the, the shores of Ireland and they don't come back. And then there's the whole notion of who, where you were going to get employment in the state. And I mean, there's, there's a collection of papers that recently came to light, which is um, 
the, the letters from old common Amman members looking for work, looking to be cleaners in government buildings, looking to become part of the women's police, you know, literally asking for, for housing, you know, all those issues and saying we are the members of common Amman who fought for, you know, for fought in 1916 and what is coming, you know, what is become, become, to become of us and they're the ones who stayed. And, and I, think, I, think that's, I think what you're looking at is, is you're, you're looking at a fragmentation of a society and I don't I think that when you look at where they went politically, they were still political. And a stagnant economy as well. Yeah, exactly. And but, I think, but, but again, and so, so the, where do they put their energies? I think, they're, I think you, you, do, you drop the word politician and you put activists in its place and you say, so they weren't, maybe they were active in, in, in setting up a you know, children's hospital or they were active in the Red Cross or they were active in the White Cross in mm. terms of whatever. And so I think, it, and, and again, there's a sort of an interesting look at you know, the people who founded Fianna Fáil and how they all broke away and where they went to and where, they, where their energies were placed in that aftermath mm. of that time. But that's too detailed for here. I think what you need to look at is, is, is we have to stop thinking that women weren't politicised and it could, of course you can go into the, the, the blue shirt and blue blouse movement and think about the hundreds of women who were in that mm. who then were members of those parties but didn't particularly take those particular memberships cards out of the drawer or, or talk about that, that, that nature of that involvement and I think that's to do with again we're back to the same thing of where, you know, who, who's writing the history and why would the women who were let's say in the suffrage movement here didn't end up in politics even local or um, and, and a lot of them were ashamed of having their parents or their mothers having been in prison and those things were hidden in drawers so Tommy, we've got different times no i just i just want to move things on because i look at the time here right mm -hmm. because obviously um, um women you know the, the, the sad reality is that they were marginalized in terms of uh, mainstream party politics yeah. but women didn't stop being active right yeah. and i'm thinking here of organizations like the irish country women's association i remember as a child visiting my relatives in county offaly with farming background and been brought to the Saturday market, right? And all these women, right? I mean, a, a massive activity. I mean, I, I just have this very, very clear memory of this, which, which always stuck in my mind, right? So you have that, you have the, 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 the ICA, and then of course also the the, um, the, the, the housewives, the Irish Housewives Association. Yeah, the they were very really strong in the I mean, 40s. How, how, yeah. how, does that feature in the in the, the curriculum now, Deirdre? Um, Those organisations that are non-political organisations. They they are because again you sort of as I say one of the I said one of the concepts that that is is a thread now through 20th century is the the emerging role of women, um, whether it's that they were marginalised at certain points or whether as I say they're now getting active outside the political sphere. I mean as I say if you take something like the you know the the ICA reading what the United Irish Women but. Um, you know, these, these are women who are working, in a sense, in parallel to the state. Uh, and that is, that is covered, as I say, within the school curriculum, you know, to improve the standard of life uh, for women. And then, of course, the, the famous Hilda Tweedy, you know, uh, in, in the 1940s. I mean, she is demanding equal rights for women as consumers. You know, the, the, there's, in a sense, it's almost moving away from the political spectrum. Okay, these are the people in, in charge of, in a sense, the domestic economy. These are the people who are the buying and selling. These are the people who are making decisions, you know, about money within the home or whatever. All very, very important roles, otherwise, you know, yeah. society doesn't function. Um, so I, I think there was a very, very interesting kind of almost socialist element, you know, mm. to, to which you referred to earlier, um, Sinead. And they're also dealing with society women. as they find it, rather as they than find as they it. wish and it to be, yeah. which exactly. I think is, is, is important. Yeah. You see that with, with Maureen O'Carroll in particular, where Maureen O'Carroll comes in, um, a Labour candidate, 
supposed to just be put on the ticket for the Labour Party to increase votes. She's the housewife's choice. She gets all this voting. She was her 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 activism was through letters to the paper, letters to politicians. But she comes into the Doyle and she starts questioning everything. And so she's probably, in terms of the modern world, she's the one who sort of calls a lot of things out in the Doyle. But she also took um, a court case against. Um, the Bachelor's Pea Company because they were putting substandard peas into, because she was involved in what was known as the, the Lower Price Council. But then she takes this um, this case and eventually what the backlash is is the factory closes down and loads of people lose their, lose their jobs. And so she doesn't end up staying in politics because of her stance, because she's made, she, you know, she, people want mm -hmm. her to stand up for them or talk to them or be their politician when she's doing something for them, but if she's taking on yeah. the bigger issues. And so what I think about it is in the case of the, the ICA, um, Fianna Fáil and other parties did look to them for their members. They, they brought them into the Senate. They tried to get the, the presidents of those, that organization with the huge numbers of women in the, the organization through into the political process. And they eventually succeeded with Kit Ahern. But they, don't, they can't sustain that through that, that particular channel of, of voting and the voting public. They, 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 I mean, the, and Kit Ahern had brought, that organization had bought, you know, it's bought premises on, in Balls Bridge. She had modernized mm -hmm. the, the ICA, but then when it's translating into votes and into the political process and into, into, the, into Doyle Aaron, it doesn't really translate. And it's very interesting. It's almost like the, you can organize a protest, but can you bring it to the next level? Mm -hmm. And that's where you've got, you've got two parallel tracks. And I think what's really interesting when you look back at a lot of the women as influencers to their own children who end up their, their, their sons or other people getting involved in politics, you have a lot of them being very good at the background of putting the electioneering, doing the organization, but so it's, they don't move very hugely, the vast numbers of them, beyond what they had been doing in the suffrage movement, which was the backroom you know, organization, mm -hmm. petitioning and all of that. So it's an, an interesting thing about how many women wanted to stand out and be the person uh, like you did, who were going to speak up mm. and, and take the, the flack of that of that political life. Mm. That's true, but um, no, yeah, I sorry, mean, yeah. you could, there were so many women in organisations. Mm -hmm. We Is talked it? about the housewives in the 40s, the housewife association. They were very strong in Ireland in the 40s, and then the ICA right through from 1910 onwards. They stayed very strong, but they were quite clear they didn't want to get involved in politics. You know, I know that mm. Kit Ahern and I know later on, remember... Um, Peggy Farrell was another... No, there was another woman, she... Be, oh, I can't think of her name, but she became very strong and she was had been come from the ICA. But I think somehow within women, in, in many cases, there's a reluctance to show yourself off, to kind of go up front, to stand up at a meeting. How many times... Would, would you go to a meeting, if I was to ask in the room now, and you had something good to say, whether it was a school board meeting or a residence association or a political party, and you have an idea you want to talk about, but you're a bit shy about putting it forward, and some fella stands up and says, says what you were going to say. <laughs> and they all say, oh, well done, Tommy, well done, well said. And you go home with your big idea locked up in here, and you don't get to express it. I think there's that innate kind of conservatism just, just, in women. Just stand here, people. Yeah. Just, just on the right there. <laughs> Sorry, <coughs> Chairman, if I could rewind back for a couple of minutes for the <coughs> post the revolution and the radical women that were involved in that. <coughs> and as it was pointed out, quite a significant number 
were anti-treaty. <clears throat> if I could broaden that by asking the curator, would you agree that quite a lot of them had a much more pronounced ideological view of what the Republic was to be about? Quite a number of them, I believe, did have very strong left-wing pro-trade unionist um, sympathies and views. <clears throat> now, following from the revolution, which uh, Professor Lee uh, would agree, <clears throat> some of the, the, the men that fought in it said that it was won by conservatives. So post-1922-23, we had a state established which was run by conservative politicians and very, very much dominated by the Catholic Church, which has been left completely out of this discussion with the role of the oppression of women and suppression of women from the 1920s onwards, right up to and including the, the year of John Charles McQuaid. And not until 1977, until we had the Equality Act, did women finally get a chance to raise their voice, with the exception of people like uh, Mrs. O'Rourke there, uh, who entered politics. But by and large, it had been more or less ingrained in women from the 1920s onwards. Keep your head down. This society is run by conservatives, but it is it's particularly run by the Catholic Church, who we know what their attitude was towards women, particularly after childbirth. Thank you. Now, I, I was actually going to come to that right at the Catholic Church, right? It's on my list here. Um, and I want to bring this back to, to the, 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 the Countess, is, which is that if you take her as an example, as we talked about her already, she's a jumble of contradictions. Right? Mm, I mean, mm. uh, in her correspondence, uh, she talks of, you know, about the Bolshevik Revolution and Godspeed Lenin. That's a fantastic <laughs> quote. I mean, yeah. there you have it all summed up. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, at that stage, um, uh, the, the, the Soviet Union, as it became, hadn't become uh, um, explicitly um, um, anti-clerical, by the way, at that stage. So now the point about it is, though, that this thing at the Catholic Church it comes up as if it's some sort of a conspiracy, right? But what about the idea that, in fact, that is what Irish society <coughs> was about? That's what the bulk of people believed in, even some of these revolutionary women. It means, in other words, mixed in with all these contradictions was Catholicism. And, then what they, what they, and, they, and that's what they end up getting, in a sense. Can I, can I go back to the this okay? So, so yeah, well, the, the, what's really interesting about it is, is that some of the women, so Helena Kilcannon, who would have been most, the most prolific of the women writers, women writers at the time, who was producing all the books on nuns in penal days, the nuns of Shadrumshambo, the um, the cult of the Virgin Mary. You know, I could go on and on and on, and uh, I'm including some of those books into the. Um, into the exhibition, and she's also writing about the movement, the Catholic movement across Europe and the organization. You've got somebody like Honor Crowley, who was the TD for Kerry, whose father was John Pius Boland, who after he ended up out of the Irish Parliamentary Party, ended up as the secretary of the Catholic Truth Society, which a case in Ireland would have been, would be now what the producing the pamphlets, which we would know as Veritas. And when you see the, 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 the numbers of of sales of those pamphlets at 40 and 50,000. So everything from what is a moral sin, how do I find the girl to marry, how do I become a nun. So you're seeing what the people are reading at the time um, in terms of, uh, of it. You're seeing the influences, as I was referring to earlier on, of where people were, were sent to school. And what's really interesting when you look mm -hmm. at politicization in terms of schooling, and I've actually looked at it in my own case, is I was not educated by an order of nuns 
who, who were going to promote anybody into politics or public life. That was not their remit. And so, you, so all of that reinforcement, and you can all think about who you were educated by, and it's a really interesting one. So you can see the Loretta nuns who were producing yearbooks for yeah, their students. And, and they were for education. For they were women. for education, but they were also about promoting the, those women who had been in their schools to yes. younger women within their schools. That's that right. was a part of what was their ethos early on. So I was really surprised to see these yearbooks and the content in the 60s and the 50s. And then you look at some, um, you look at the Dominicans and you can see where their, where their influences are. And then you have other orders of nuns where it's not the emphasis. So the emphasis is into the civil service, it's into nursing, it's into, into, into sort of traditional roles. And in the case of the, the order that I was, was, was educated by, they were an Italian order that came to Limerick. But what, what's important about them is they were about working girls having extra money if they ended up in a, working in a factory. And so again, I, there's, a, you know, I, there's, there's quite a lot you could, you could say about that in terms of the way that I was being programmed and influenced in my formative years. But, but what I think about it is, and what your question in relation to it is, yes, those women stayed active. We do know that the, that the second Doyle still conti continued to convene right into the late 20s. There was a very interesting discovery that I made re in recent times when Lafayette decided to post up their photographs. You could actually buy a photograph of Doll Aaron, 1928, which has a group of people sitting in the back of a house in a garden. In it is included Dr. Ada English, Mary McSweeney, Kate O'Callaghan. Does anybody know what I'm referring to? They were still convening as Miss McSweeney's Doyle. And what's really interesting about Mary McSweeney locked into that world, she was living, as my mother would say, on the clippings of tin because of the fact that she was staying outside the state. The same thing with Hannah Sheehy Skeffington. They couldn't remain as teachers. They wouldn't take the oath of allegiance. And then, of course, we've got legislation that takes women out, out of teaching, out of the senior civil service, taking out, out of that. And so you've got that, that, that removal of women. And the, why were the women not protesting against that within the, um, within the Doyle? Well, again, if you look at their backgrounds, you've got that conservative wing that are not mm -hmm. actually going to stand up. They're not the radicals that are in there. They're the people who are, who are coming through the, the more conservative, conservative um, role. So I think, I think what, what, what you look at is, is, is that, and then you look at, the, at the where, where you have um, people of another religion in the Doyle and the small numbers of them. Mm -hmm. And what's very interesting, if you look at the likes of Heather Humphreys in the more recent time, she was actually educated in a community school um, in Coothill and Cavan um, at a time in the border county. And so she ends up then heading up the, the 1916 commemorations from this war. And one of the reasons that we have a more complicated or a more complex look at that is because of her own background and her own, and her own, her own education. So I'm just, I just think that when you look at that line, it's not a simple one-liner. It's just to try and, and see, and you're thinking about the emigration and the concentration. And just one last point. Um, I mentioned it when I was giving the, the walk around the space. I won't call it an exhibition because it's not it that yet, um, at the space. And that was that when I went to look at the material that's in the Women's Library in London, and it was very, very sobering. And all of it was in relation to the, the vigilant groups that were on the quays meeting the Irish girls who were coming, the very poor, not always pregnant or looking for homes, but very, very poor. And they were trying to prevent them from going into the poorer areas in the cities. And, and they were trying to sort of be there as a sort of um, a protection force, as it were. And what was very interesting was, what was their decision? Their decision was to go back through, this came through the McNeils in the, um, the embassy, and this is back to the importance of primary research. 
they suggested that the only way that they were going to prevent this emigration flow is what they were trying to do of the very poor from Irish into the English ports was to go back through the priests and the parish community and allow them to have that have that control of what was happening and so then you can see the establishment so clearly in 23 and 24 into the fact that it's all been funneled through the convents and the different institutions mm. and back into the into the where people were going so what I think what I think about it is is it's what I said at the outset and what we said from the out the enders we have now moved beyond the revolutionary period in some ways in our research and we're starting to look at the at the women who may have been more conservative accepted the, the, the state and we have to move away from 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 the radicals and look at why people were, were, were coming forward and you can find and trace radical mothers and grandmothers mm -hmm. and progressive men and radical backgrounds and everywhere and I always think about about Garrett Fitzgerald bringing women into politics and his and his mother being who she was, mm. Mabel Fitzgerald, who had been, you know, um, secretary to George Bernard Shaw, who had been um, out in 16 but had gone home again, if you remember that story, and that mm. she had been pro, sorry, to anti-treaty while her husband had been pro-treaty and she had stuck, and that's their memory of their mother, radical, opinionated, and so he then... Just to reinforce what you're saying, Sinead, I mean, one thing... And again, I say this as a question, as mm. well as just, just to, to, to think about it, that when you think about, okay, the, the, all these radical women and their families and, and whatever, right up to, to 1922, you know, what an extraordinary decade it was, say, from 1912 to 22. And it was a whole decade that involved uncertainty. Then you get to 1922, and suddenly you're being faced with certainty, if, if you see what I mean. You're being now faced with, with literally state building, with structures. Um, that maybe there was a bit of war weariness, you know, of being being tired of, of the, the uncertainties of everyday life, and that some women just decided willingly, maybe for right reasons or wrong reasons, but to withdraw and just say, let's just get on with it and wait for another time and let's see how it evolves. Um, but that, that's just, just food for thought, you know, from certainty to, to from uncertainty to certainty. Dude, that just keep your keys up because I'm looking at the time here, right? Yeah. Because waiting for what another time. What time have you got? Um, I mean, when do we have to stop? Um, <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll decide that. No, I want to move on to, to so what, what is referred to. Two minutes. But uh, if, if yeah. second, second wave feminism, right, um, in the 1970s. And, and, and I'm assuming many of these second wave feminists were educated by nuns, including Dominican nuns. Uh, um, I mean, is, is that, does that come out of the blue, or is there a continuum? Is this something that, that comes, is it an external thing, because of the international women's movement, or does it have uh, indigenous roots? I don't know, Joe, have you any comment on you that? You mean like the women uh, who went on the I'd be the last person to ask about things like that. <laughs> the, the, the contraception train, I mean, what's yeah. your, your experience of that? Well, I don't know because you were done. I know you would have read the newspapers, right? You, you just missed it. No, 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 no. I, I, I remember all of that, and I luxuriated in those brave women. I really did. Mm. I particularly loved the little cameos you got when they got off the train at Western Row, as it then was, or whatever. And they kept ran up to the guard. That this is what we were up in Belfast buying, and they were sticking them into their faces. You know, I loved that story. And the guard they said, "I don't want it, Mrs. I don't want it." <laughs> and some of them didn't even know what they had. Some of the women, right? No, uh, but I know the men. Yeah. yeah. But uh, no, of course I followed all of that. 
but I don't think they were a natural, you've asked that question, were there a natural progression right. from something that happened? I think there was normal activism in the 40s and mm -hmm. 50s, yes. and they were follow on in that train. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly the stupidity of no contraception became very apparent to everyone, or to most of the women anyway, because they were suddenly faced with you can't have contraception. You're going to keep on having children, one by one by one by one by one. Wonderful and all that would be if, if you were able to do it. But why could they have contraception? It was a pure practicality. Can, can I just make a point before you answer, just, just to make a point about referencing and sourcing. Um, in Nuala Fennell's collection, yes. there is a letter from Mary O'Rourke yes, right. supporting her campaign in 1977 mm -hmm. and giving sending her five your, for her, for, 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 for for her, her election for, for, because she stood as an independent, and yeah. I say to you that that it's what you what you find are the drawing of the lines and the circles closing. Mm -hmm. I don't think people come out of nowhere, and I think what mm -hmm. you, what, what, what what Joe has said so eloquently earlier earlier on, um, I bow before him, um, is that the idea of the of the of the historian saying, "Why am I thinking this?" And there's a great quote they have put on the, the grave of, of Anna Parnell, which is, the greatest independence is the independence yeah, of the mind. But, 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 but I'm saying to you, you're the product of your parents, and yeah. you're the product of your mother was university yeah. educated. Mm -hmm. And so I'm seeing in you a line that, that you don't come mm -hmm. out of nowhere. And so I think what, I, what I'm saying to you is, is when you look at the, the level, there's only one woman politician that I could find in all of the women who actually managed to make it to Dáil Éireann who wasn't university, or sorry, wasn't secondary school educated in a time when it wasn't free, and that is Mary Reynolds, and she's the exception. So everyone else had the luxury of, of, edu of, of education, yeah. education of somebody who opened their minds. And, and I think, I, yeah. sorry to interrupt you now, but I just wanted to say that in terms yes, of Mary O'Rourke. Yeah, I must tell you about that later. Yeah. Just, just very quickly, um, again, just, just this lady has a question. Just, just back to the sources. I, it it just, it's just very, very quick. Just um, again, uh, I, I've been teaching in Dominican school for 30 years. I, I teach in, in, in Muckers Park College, um, and one of the great things that we do, which I mentioned earlier about the census, but uh, the first class that I do with, with my students um, in an archives module that they do is to find Muckers. Uh, and uh, I was telling Honor about this earlier, to find Muckers in the 1911 census. And when they eventually do the detective work and they find workers, they said, okay, you can see the names of the nuns, you can see et cetera, et cetera. But look at the subjects they're teaching. You see the curriculum. And I'd say, are there any subjects that stand out in that list? Uh, so the Irish is there, maths is there, et cetera, et cetera. But you know what's there in 1911? Science and German. Now, I'd say you could name, you know, literally on the fingers of one hand, the amount of schools that were offering teenage girls in 1911, science and German, back to the Dominican ethos of be useful, be able to be a participant in society, regardless of whether you're a man or a woman. Mm -hmm. And to finish, to, to tie that up to the present, which obviously passes the 70s and brings it up to the noughties, is the name of uh, one of the pupils there is Halpenny, and the last Halpenny left Muckrus a couple of years ago and did, did her leaving. Um, I'm just saying there's a, there's a continuity there. And you know, as I say, I don't think it is an accident, I think you're right, Sinead, that there is that continuity in terms of certainly people's education. Get in quick. Question. Right, I mean, <laughs> I'm trying to hold on to my train of thought. Um, I was a young married woman in the very early 70s. And I, what I found very influential was the talk radio because I was at home, I was looking after children, but you had these, um, I think was it Liam Nolan had some 
television or radio program for several hours in the morning, so I listened to this as I was doing my my sort of housewifely duties. And uh, then you had these kind of ring-in places. Gay Byrne, I think, was quite influential in listening to ordinary women who were sitting at home and their views got out into the, the ether. And then other women were listening and they sort of um, had, had their own uh, stories to tell. And I think it's gone to the other extreme nowadays, you know, we find out what's wrong with your left toenail. But I think um, at that stage it was really liberating for women to have a kind of a forum where they were a little bit anonymous, but they could actually speak their minds and then they found that there was a sort of a fellowship, if you pardon the, the what would you call it, the contradiction in terms, um, or a sisterhood, you know, that, yeah, they feel the same way as I do. And one other minor thing when I eventually separated and I tried to buy myself a washing machine I was told I'd have to get my husband to yeah. underwrite it for me yeah. Yeah. so sorry those kind of things I think helped to make women understand that you know they needed a voice and the only way to do that was to push other women forward, the likes of Nuala Fennell and all those people who were so supportive, and Monica Barnes. And they had a tough life. And just make the point that, you know, um, yeah. that, you know I, I, I would have been a teenager, a young man, listening to that, that kind of radio as well. So it's not just, it's not just women are into, it, it would have been a part of this discussion you just described. Yeah. But I think it, it, it certainly, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember, who is it? Women Today was the, the one. Marion Marion Fanucan. One of the first books that was produced, though, by, by Nuno Fennell um, and others um, was the change or change. And chains or change. And what one of the things was to point out to people all of those things that they that were you know the bank manager you had to have things underwritten you you you, you where they where people were accepting sort of things as that was the way it was and there was no wriggle room or there was no way way of doing it that they began to to call out those those things and 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 so then you have the likes of the the labour women's groups set up and they started to look at it not emotively but with statistics. So they started to produce the, the evidence around, like, why weren't the women, you know, telephones getting the same money as the men? And you can see the columns in the material that's in the Labour History Society, where it's because they're not permitted to plug it in or to, to lift heavy items. And that's where the money differentiation was coming. And you look at it as a modern person now, and you think, oh, that's mad. But then, as you say, in your time, you think, you know, you, that's the norm. Everywhere you turn, you had, to get, you had to get someone to underwrite you. And sometimes that was the local priest or the local bank manager. And so few people had those access. So a lot of Ireland, as you had mentioned just briefly, was to do with economics and in to do with the power of money. And we go back to the earlier women where they were independently wealthy so they could speak out because it didn't affect their job and it didn't affect them in, in how they were going to be seen by their employer. So it's very difficult for women um, unless they had some sort of backing to be able to stand up for those small things that were so important. Can I, can I just ask the panel, their view, and possibly maybe Mary, because she would have the background. The, the period you're talking about from post-revolution to the 1970s, I would um, consider that would have been a Dev era. And I think Dev was particularly responsible for um, 
they are brushing the women out of history. I don't know how, what you as historians would feel about that. The other aspect was television, as the other uh, ladies commented, came in very much. And as we all know, there was no sex in Ireland before the Late Late Show. So, and, and it brought globalization, brought other people, other women and other countries um, to the floor and to, to Irish women's attention. Uh, I would be interested in your comments on those two aspects. Well, the first question, it's a very good point. Did De Valera brush women out of, or did he intentionally do it? Isn't that what you asked? Yes. yes. I think he did. I just think he did. And it wasn't from being a male and wanting to be controlling everything. <coughs> it was his nature. He was, I mean, he left Sinead, his wife, for, as we know, for years and years. She just kept having her children and minded them and bringing them up beautifully. And he would come back and visit her, and the result would be another child. But <laughs> seriously, he did very much not see women in public life. And he, I mean, the 1937 Constitution and that um, that um, clause in it that we're all, well, I personally feel it's all very wrong, in which he patronises the eminent role women play in the home and the good that does the country. Ooh, ooh. But just nothing about it. I think that he very much, that was his nature. Now, he was very kind to everyone. I'm just in the middle of David McCullough's second huge compendium on De Valera, and I'm amazed at his kindness to women he had, and to his wife in other ways. But it wasn't his nature to see that life. You see, we're judging him now, as for now, with women out everywhere and in everything. In his time, not. But I do think he definitely did airbrush, whether consciously or unconsciously, women out of life a lot. Yeah. I tell you, I could hit this one first because you've been in before. Now, that's mind. a heresy, of course, for me to say. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I, this I'm this will be recorded book on our website. Sorry, Honor. Um, I just wanted to just go back on something that Mary touched on about the reticence of women. Um, it, it is true that women are very reticent. I mean, I'm wondering in the election of 1918, how many women newly enfranchised supported the 17 women that went for election? We don't tend to be very supportive of our own, unfortunately. Women, that's, to me, that's, I, I feel that. Um, I also feel that, uh, Talking about the 70s, I, I had my first child overseas and I came back to Ireland in 1970. I'd had a cesarean section, so I couldn't have another baby. I was told, don't have another baby for three years. My baby was one year old. I knew I had to have contraception, but I couldn't even go to my own mother to say, ma'am, I need to do this. So I think women have to, we can't, we can't put the blame on people like De Valera or, um, you know, the patriarchal society. Women, women didn't support women or women still don't support women. So I think when we finally realise that as women, that we have to get out there, we have to stand up for our rights and not be afraid, not be so reticent as Mary pointed out. Can I just throw something maybe to you, Joe? Like, what's the international context here? We're talking about contexts, right? 
I mean, are we peculiar, or are we pretty much? Is this is this the same everywhere at this uh, over the period we're discussing? I mean, the, the, the women in France didn't get the vote until 1945. Yeah, I don't in France, yeah. yeah. I don't think we're exceptional in the, in the sense that I don't even stand out, let's put it like that. There's a variety of, of um, experiences across different European countries, uh, etc. But the one, one thing I would say, um, back to what you were saying, Mary, about Dev, Dev and women, uh, I wouldn't disagree with you. Uh, but he's simply inheriting what came, be, you know, what came before. There was no women in terms of the, the previous 10 years, mm. the first 10 years, all it is is continuity, basically. Uh, and um, in, that, in that sense, he's representative of an entire generation. Oh, it's yes, not as if he's imposing by, you know, by, by, by decree. The other thing I would say, very briefly, and I hope I'm not sounding too sort of academic, uh, is that um, if we look at the uh, at, at background of the treaty and the immediate result of it, um, it's often said that sort of the, the treaty established Northern Ireland. Uh, it didn't. Northern Ireland was established before the treaty. Northern Ireland was imposed by the British government mm. uh, before the treaty. Uh, Northern Ireland Parliament was in existence before Doyle. Mm. It was there was an election in Northern Ireland before the the um, uh, Doyle elections. Uh, so that in effect, the 26 counties are what's left over mm. after the treaty has been imposed. Now we can talk about the rights and wrongs of this stuff. Oh, I'm not bothered yeah. about that. And we talk about the realities mm. that we tend to assume that there's something somehow that was a uh, an open playing pitch to be for us to decide what we were going to do, etc. The, the, the people making the decisions then, you can agree or disagree with them, etc., etc., they were making them within very tight constraints on their room for manoeuvre. Uh, it's not as if we, here's, a, here's, a, here's a, a list of options and you choose whichever you want. They were told what they could have. And if, if you don't choose these, they will be imposed on you. Because we've got the guns and you haven't. Simple as that. You can go back to all the constitutional invocations you like about British this and British that and British the other thing, etc., etc. And I'm not even saying it was necessarily the, the ultimately the wrong or bad, worst possible decision for Ireland because the, any alternative you can think of could well have been worse in terms of what happened. We had a civil war rising out of it. Uh, ultimately, if it hadn't been originally, who the hell knows what, what would have happened. So I'm making no judgment there whatsoever, except if you're in the eye of the storm, having to make decisions under enormous pressure, with effectively a gun pointed at your head. Uh, but anybody who took decisions there, and there may have been a whole negative motive, there usually are in human relations, um, could probably have brought up a justifiable sort of situation. The other thing I would say, because we're talking about women in a way, there must have been a female majority in the June 22 election for the pro-treaty position. There simply must have been. There is no way the arithmetic adds up if there wasn't. The anti-treaty position was a distinct minority position. Right or wrong is a different matter, but in terms of the votes cast, that's that. Uh, and that continued in a way, um, probably until de Valera was able to establish a foil and begin moving towards it. Uh, now, the, 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 the anti-treaty IRA got a very respectable vote in the 1923 election. Mm. The 1923 election was imposed, there had to be an election within one year of the treaty. Uh, and they got, uh, I think, for the 44 seats, correct me, on the, maybe one or two out, but not more than that. Um, Coming away, only got maybe four or five seats more. Mm. And the rest is spread out among, labelled it very well, farmers. We don't think of farmers' parties nowadays. There were 10 or 12 farming representatives. Uh, and there was a number of others. So that you have a very, I mean, you have a massive majority, a two-to-one majority, um, by the pro-treaty parties, mm. right? But divided all among themselves. But it meant that I, Sinn Féin had no chance whatsoever of getting in. And that was, of course, what started De Valera on his manoeuvres. 
Uh, and if I may say so, maybe no better man to manoeuvre once the idea got into his head. Uh, but it took four years. Uh, it was 27 before they got into the oil, and we all know the way it got into the oil because the Bible was shifted from one corner of the room to the other. And um, Dr. you know, he's not taking any oath. Uh, you know, I'm taking no oath, I'm just sending a bit of people. Um, and from then on, he played a blind uh, in terms of party politics. Again, right or wrong, I'm taking no position on rights of these things, but we, we, we're here talking about as, as if there was you know, wide open freedom of, freedom of choice. And I, a majority of women must have supported the treaty in the elections. Uh, if they supported them, remember, and this is where we tend to forget as well, 1922 is not 1918. There's been a massive slump between 2021 21, 22. So if you're voting as a woman, in June 1922, you're looking at a situation where the idea of Northern Ireland is way up there, etc. What's going to put bread on our table? You know, what if, what's our family, how's our family going to respond? Okay, the church, yes, the church has a position, etc., etc., but you know, the church had positioned previously and withdrew from them under, under public opinion. Circumstances have changed dramatically. We're not talking about four years of remaining constant between 18 and 22. We're talking about very shifting, very shifting economic circumstances. And if you put yourself in the position of a voter going out who has to think about his or her, her family, or kids, etc., etc. You have the resumption of immigration. Remember, there was virtually no immigration during the war. You begin getting rapid resumption of immigration to America from 1920-21 on. Right, the 20s become again a renewed immigration decade. The 30s slump because there's no jobs in the states. Yeah. Right. Uh, we're talking about a very, a very modulated, a shifting situation, and we have to, if we're going to think historically. This doesn't mean to say you've got to agree with the decisions taken, but I think historically we have to put ourselves back into the position of the people taking the decisions in the circumstances they are confronting at that particular time. And not, at least as far as I'm concerned, not say they ought to have done this because this is what I want would have preferred to have happened. That's all I I'm sorry for something so didn't Can I but pick up on something very, yes, Mary, very yeah. small, but it's just it evoked a memory in me. When you said that that new defendants' papers had she, they had kept the letter I wrote to her. I remember, in, I can see myself sitting at the kitchen table. I was, an in, I was a Fianna Fáil councillor at the time, and I remember admiring Nuala Fennett so much. In, she, you know, she was in the public eye, and she was doing things for women. And I remember sitting down and saying, I'm going to write to Nuala Fennett. Mm -hmm. And I, had a, I gave her a fiver for her election campaign. I know it seems very little now, but maybe it was a lot more then. It was. <laughs> <laughs> but I can vividly remember writing the letter. And I wished her well in her, in, in her campaign. And I said, I admired her. I think I said that. I love what you're doing, and I follow you all the time. So women did follow women, just to speak. Somebody had that point mm -hmm. there about did women do things for women. But they talked about Monica Barnes and Nuala Fennell. I vividly supported Nuala Fennell. And always did, and when she was in the doll and that I was there too, I just thought she was a very fine person, a really good woman who did things for women, and her party didn't come into it at all. She was independent that time, but then she became Fine Gael. But um, I, I didn't worry, I just admired her as a woman. You know, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. Sorry, um, just a few snippets. Uh, this going backwards a little bit. Uh, it, when the uh, guys are going in to set up the first oil and under its uh, original constitution, uh, family lore has it that it was Count Plunkett who reminded them that they were under the 1916 brief and had to accommodate women because they were going to just forget that as they went into the first oil. So uh, even at the very beginning, I think revolutionary women were well aware 
that they were going to be uh, pushed out uh, with the new government. And in the 1920s government, the Common Ale government, three pieces of anti-women anti legislation were passed. And even Jenny Wise Power, who had stayed with the, the movement and had been uh, with Anna Parnell in the uh, late 19th century, uh, had to leave at that stage because it became obvious that women had no place and were going to be pushed down. The, 19, uh, the um, second doll um, actually met until 1938. And uh, the, the premise there was that most people in Ireland, and I think this is fairly true, didn't really know what a republic was, and that included the politicians. They hadn't defined it, and they hadn't investigated what it meant for Ireland itself. And uh, just finally, um, I, well, too, too finally, I saw my mother, who believed the only way you could achieve anything was to be a surrogate man. Uh, she was a professional woman. And then late in the day, she became a terrific uh, pro-feminist and feminist herself. Uh, and I also had the privilege of serving on one of the first juries. And it's extraordinary to think that it took all that time mm -hmm. for women to get back onto juries, having been um, uh, cast out <laughs> in the 1920s. Thank you very much. Now, any, yeah, question at the back. And just bear in mind that we, we will be wrapping up shortly, so if you have anything to say, now is the time to get it in. It's more a question than a comment, yeah. just in light of, of what you were just saying there, is how many women went for, it's just something I'm not aware of, how many women went for election in 23 and 27, or when was the next time that women put themselves forward as candidates in Irish elections? You wonder about that? Uh, uh, well, it was the um, you, well. You have to, you, they come in, in in ones and twos mostly at, the, at the, that early early stage, and I think what, what what you have is a lot of the they weren't going in through the party selection. So even when it happens later on, for Mary Ryan is wanted locally in Tipperary when her husband dies in the 40s. Then they they. Um, they, she's not supposed to be selected by the party. She's they, 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 but they push her locally. So, so what it is is it was very hard to to get to the selection process that happened mm. later on, right through the period. And um, so they come, they come, they come through in, in ones and twos. What's really interesting about some of the women who came in through the, the widows' vote, as they said, from when their husbands died and they took their seat. Um, somebody like Joan Burke um, ended up, you know, topping the poll locally for many, many years. But she's not really even well known as a name. She was a Fine Gael politician and um, Roscommon because she was very much working for cons constituency um, work and they didn't tend to make it into the media and they didn't tend mm -hmm. to get any sort of platform there. Just to, to the point that somebody said earlier on about the, the influence in Ireland, um, I, the way, one way I always make myself come across really old to my children is that um, I grew up you know, through, right through into the 80s with one television channel. I mean, <laughs> we didn't even have access to BBC because I was um, in Limerick. So I think what, what, what it is in Ireland, while yes, there's European, you know, um, parallels when you think about Ireland is it's really how, how focused we were on national radio and a national line and, 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 and it is very much that sort of insular look um, even into the 80s so I just wanted to make that point about, 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 the, about the media um, but also uh, the interesting one to look at Damon de Valera as well is um, the fact that he was returned home to his grandparents um, in Limerick and his mother you know, remained on in America three, yeah. and that, that in terms of, of him and his personal circumstances um, his mother was in America for economic necessity and he's been brought up and I always think that, that you can imagine when he was in Limerick and again the sort of same things that happened 
how influenced he must have been by how he grew so tall, he would have stood out all the time and he was he didn't have his parents when he was growing up so I think when we talk about um, anybody it's very interesting and my interest is always about biography is to see where where things happen to them to make them make decisions later on and I think history shows he did feel an, outs an outsider uh, an out yes he an did outsider from the, the beginning yes Joe you want to say something well, just, uh, the, the only comment I want to make uh, um, we're talking about politics, politics, politics all the time, and the, the role of women in politics. I mean, a, a crucial variable, a crucial factor is simply women in the civil service. And there were none, virtually none, until very, very, very recently at senior levels. Mm. Not women at, at a very junior level. It's only very, very recently that women have begun to be, get close to the top of the civil service. And until that happens in a much more sustained way, you're not going to get anything like total, what I would regard as I was going to say fairness, but let's say equality of opportunity. Uh, and that is at least for what's happening in education and what's happening with the very significantly higher proportion of girls now getting on to third level, mm. I think is a, is, a, is a game changer. But by definition, it's going to be a slowish game changer, it'll be a generational game changer. But it's certainly going to transform the next generation uh, uh, the potential of what is, quote, gender equality throughout the country. But until that happens, politics alone in a narrow sense. <laughs> is not going to be able to determine. Can I go to Deirdre if the last word on this right there? Because you're, you're at the, at the coalface teaching um, um, female students. And what, what's your sense of their feeling, like of, of where, where they're at, right? I mean, of their ambitions in life? Um, they see the world as their oyster. They, um, they do not see limitations. Um, if anything, in fact, maybe in some cases they'd like to achieve them without maybe having to do some work along the way, but, uh, but that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a scale, Ellen. That's probably a typical kind of teenage thing. No, but seriously, I'll, I'll give you one, one small example. Um, when the repeal of the Eighth, that, that whole uh, episode in, in Irish public life um, was dominating, I remember on the Friday, my students sitting in front of me in their green uniforms at Veritas and Dominican uniform or whatever. Uh, and then when the actual count came, I remember looking at the television screen and there on the screen was Lisa, one of my sixers, uh, now in a black t-shirt with Repeal the Eight, celebrating in, in the, the square there in Dublin Castle along with the rest, and not a bother on her. She, <laughs> she uh, was not an exceptional woman. I think she was very, very, as I say, when I say average, I don't mean that intellectually, I mean that she is very much representative, representative. representative yeah. of young people today. Yeah. Um, and to me, that kind of encapsulated, said, my God, we've come a long way. Mm -hmm. um, so hopefully maybe that, that will just kind of crystallise. Uh, there's confidence, there's, of course, endless opportunity. They're, um, they're being educated at a time where there are all kinds of options. Um, but it's, it's great to see them making use of it and being themselves and seeing, the great thing is about seeing possibilities, going back to the Dominican education, seeing possibilities all the time, right. not limitations. Well, listen, I'm going to wrap up on, on that uh, positive note. Um, I just have to thank, uh, but first of all, I want to thank the Department of Culture, Heritage and the Great for their financial support for this uh, event. Uh, I'd like to thank the people here in Dublin Castle um, and uh, the, 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 for, for the facilities they've uh, given us, and our panel, Victor um, Sinead, uh, to showing us around an exhibition that 
has not, does not yet exist. And we're all longing to see Which took quite a, quite a bit of... Uh, I did that for you as a great favour. They, they wanted to cancel it because we weren't available. So I said I could actually do the Emperor's New Clothes for you, Tommy. Yes. So that's why I did it. So I'm looking forward to actually seeing the yeah. exhibition itself. Uh, Mary O'Rourke, uh, uh, in particular, uh, Joe Lee and uh, 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 Deirdre McMahuna. I'd also like to thank you, the audience, particularly those people who made contributions from the floor. Now, just to let you know, uh, next Hedge School will be taking place in Ballyshannon, uh, which is my hometown, by the way, just coincidentally. Uh, that's happening tomorrow week, Saturday the 10th, and we're going to be looking at the 1918 uh, general election. And another one then, following week then, as part of the Dublin uh, Festival of Books, uh, The Great Hunger Reassessed, and that will take place in the, um, the Dublin Port HQ on Alexander Road at 2.30 on Saturday the 17th of November. So I hope to see you, maybe some of you, at one or two of those events. Thank you very Tommy, much. Tommy, I, I have one commercial. Yes, one get commercial, it in, get it since in. we're talking about this is This is one last big. I don't know if any of you were uh, listening um, a few days ago, but there's a launch from um, the Minister of Culture, Heritage, and the Gael talked about the great sort of investment for Heritage Ireland 2030. Um, oh, yeah. and one of the uh, parts of the plan says the following. It says, Heritage Ireland 2030 will recognise the vital role our heritage plays in our community, our economy, and our society. And here's the commercial. Uh, history is now being marginalised in the curriculum at junior, at junior cycle level. And if they want to be able to celebrate with the community in the future, you have to teach them history. Yeah. Uh, so therefore, yeah. our history and our heritage. So, so put, put history back in the core curriculum. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.